love for you to grab a Bible and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12 as we talk about the gift of discernment. Uh, thankful for Nick teaching last week. Heard really good things about his lesson. I heard that there was like 20 salvations and you know, a, a, a revival broke and people were speaking in tongues and so on. So I'm glad, glad for his teaching here last week. Um, last week we, uh, we saw the, the place of discernment and, dis, and discerning the will of God in your life. Today we're going to talk about the gift of discernment as a gift of the Spirit. Well, today and next week we're splitting this lesson in two because it got a little too big. Uh, so today's part one, Lord willing, next Wednesday will be part two. So 1 Corinthians 12, starting at verse 1, we're going to read through verse 7. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be ignorant. You know that you are Gentiles carried away to these dumb idols, however you are led. Therefore, I, have made, I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God calls Jesus accursed, and no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. There are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are differences of ministries, but the same Lord. And there are diversities of activities, but it is the same God who works all in all. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. The Lord Jesus Christ provides uh, for His church in every way. In every single way, the Lord Jesus Christ provides for, for us, for His church. He gifts His people. He gives spiritual gifts to His people so that everyone can grow in Him. Uh, he, the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 4, 7 and 8, that to each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gifts. Therefore, he says, when He ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. So Christ gives gifts through His Spirit, and the gifts of the Holy Spirit are meant to build within the local church a web of love and service that cannot be undone. In the passage we read this tonight, we find a basic theology of spiritual gifts. In a few minutes, we are going to examine what gifts we should be seeking and which ones were for a previous, a previous administration of the church. For now, from the passage we just read, I want us to notice five principles concerning spiritual gifts from 1 Corinthians 12, 1 through 4. The first one, notice in verse 4, that there's a variety of spiritual gifts. Paul says there are there are diversities of gifts. There's a variety of gifts given to the church. There are several, if you look through the New Testament, there are several, several unique lists. That is, lists that don't match each other of spiritual gifts. And it is unlikely that these lists are exhaustive lists. That they are just representative. That there are many other gifts that the Spirit gives besides uh, these lists. One of the reasons why we think these are not exhaustive is that if they were exhaustive, then every list should be the same for every church. Not, not different lists in different places. So the gifts mentioned in the Bible are representative of the types of gifts God gives. And the variety of gifts is meant to build a stronger church. 
That's why God gifts, gives, uh, gives gifts to his church so that the church can be stronger, so the church can be more united, so the church can be more loving. It's not to create disruption as it was doing, doing in Corinth. In Corinth, uh, people were fighting because this group had this one particular group of gift, this other group had another particular gift, and they were fighting which one was the best one, and they write to Paul, Paul, can you tell the other people that our gift, my gift is better than theirs? And that's not the purpose. The purpose of the gift is the Lord Jesus, to, to bring people together, to unify the church through that diversity, to, for the church to realize that we need each other because we are not self-sufficient. So the first principle is that there's a variety of gifts in the church of Jesus Christ, all given by the Spirit. The second one is that, indeed, these are empowered by the Spirit. In verse 7, Paul says, But the manifestations of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. So the Spirit gives, the Spirit empowers. And this is important to realize because we tend to think that what our personality is, that's our gift. What we're comfortable with, that's our gift. What we're good at, that's our gift. And that may not be the case. It's a spiritual gift. It's a gift of the Holy Spirit. It's not a gift that you do in your own strength. So the Lord Jesus Christ, through His Spirit, dispenses gifts as He sees fit. And having done that, He empowers their use. It might be something that you're not comfortable with. That might be something that goes against your personality. So it's empowered by the Spirit. Thirdly, everyone has a gift. Again, in verse 7, it says, By the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. These gifts, are not, these gifts are given to every believer without exception. Every one of you is blessed with gifts from the Spirit. Every last one. Everyone has been redeemed by Jesus Christ, heart changed by the Spirit, given faith to be justified, is growing more like Jesus Christ, is gifted to serve in the church, to serve one another. Fourth, fourth principle we see here, is that these gifts are a manifestation of the Spirit. Again in verse 7, but the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one. To manifest is to make known. So these gifts are meant to make us see and understand the work of the Spirit in the church and to lead us to glorify Him and to exalt Christ. These, they're the manifestation of the Spirit, which means there's no self-exaltation in these gifts. It, this is the Spirit showing off, not us. So the result of these gifts, as they are practiced in the church, is that the Spirit is glorified, and when the Spirit is glorified, guess what happens? Christ is exalted, because the ministry of the Spirit is to exalt Christ. And then the fifth thing here we see, that's for the common good. Again, verse 7, for the, But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. Each, one, per, each person has gifts for the profit of the whole body. So spiritual gifts are not self-serving. When we exercise our spiritual gifts, we are not to focus on ourselves. We practice them in order to serve others. That's why the Spirit gives us gifts, that we might serve others. Any questions or comments on these five basic principles as we start talking about gifts that come from the Spirit, and eventually we'll get into the gift of discernment? All right. So, 
Theologians separate the gifts of the Spirit into two categories. One category is gifts given to edify the church. The second category are gifts given to verify or to validate the word of God. So we have gifts that are primarily meant to edify the church and gifts that are primarily meant to authenticate or validate the, the word of God. And we have to figure out where, where a gift falls into uh, one of these two categories. There's virtually complete agreement among all Bible-believing scholars that the gifts intend primarily for the edification of the church are perpetual. Therefore, everyone, every time, in the existence of the church. Now, concerning the gifts intended primarily to authenticate the Word of God, Bible-believing scholars are divided into two broad categories. So, the bottom one, the first one, we're good. The bottom one, there's debate. And we're going to split that into two categories. Okay? One category, one group of people, believes that the function of these gifts, which would be like speaking in tongues, prophecies, miracles done through the, media, the, through the mediation of special people, these gifts are no longer needed since we have the whole Bible. The Bible has been authenticated, so we don't need them anymore. They've ceased to have a purpose. These, this group, we're going to call them cessationists because they believe that these gifts, tongue, prophecies, the ability to heal people, um, have ceased. From the word seized, then comes the title cessationist. Okay? The other group, we're going to call them continuationists or non-cessationists. Actually, you're going to see non-cessationists more often than continuationists. Believe that speaking in tongues, prophecies, miracles mediated through special people are still gifts for the church today. And we see, should seek them. So these are the two groups that debate one another. Both Bible-believing um, people fall in both groups. The Bible Presbyterian Church is a cessationist church. So we as a church believe that tongues, prophecies, miracles or healings done by special people, those have ceased. And I go, notice how I'm going out of my way to say uh, healings done by special people, mediated by special people, because we believe God heals. We believe that he, got, he heals immediately if he wants to, or he heals through medicine. But there is no such thing as the office of the healer in the church. Like uh, in the New Testament, you have people that were able to heal other people, that God mediated healing through those people. We believe that that has ceased. Any questions on these definitions? We're going to talk more about that, uh, just about the definitions. Yes, Jerry. Well, maybe it's not just definitions. I have a question on it. Um, is there scripture to back up what you just said? No, I'm just kind of, I don't care about the Bible. There's no scripture. Are you going to list them or give them to us? <laughs> you, I, I assumed you knew them. No, actually, that's what we're going to do next. I want to present. Okay, okay. And that's why I split into two. Because I thought before we got to actually talk about the gift of discernment, we have to figure out what gifts we should be pursuing. Okay. Right? So I wanted to present an apology. And apology that means I'm sorry about my position. It means a defense, a defense 
of the cessationist position. It's the position I hold, it's the position that our nation holds, uh, and that's our constitution states that. So I want to present a defense for why we believe that these gifts, speaking tongues, prophecies, special miracles, have ceased to be, to be a present in the church of Jesus Christ today. Is it only those three? What other ones would you... No, I'm just asking. Is no, seriously, I'm asking you, what, 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 which ones would you want to put in there? Okay. So these are the three big ones. So healings, prophecies, and tongues are the three big ones that people tend to. If you're not, if you're a continuationist, those are the three big ones that people focus on. Okay. Any other questions before we continue? All right. Let's start the the, the, the apology, the defense, by looking at what's called in the Bible the apostolic signs. Throughout the New Testament, there are many examples of the extraordinary gifts of the Holy Spirit. In the Gospels, we see Jesus healing the, the lame, the blind, or the sick. We see him um, casting out demons. That might be another one we want to throw in, in there. We see the apostles doing that too. We see the 70s the, in Matthew 10 when they're sent out. They do that. Uh, so we see the disciples of Jesus doing the, these things as well. Outside, outside of the Gospels, we see that all the extraordinary gifts, these special gifts of the Spirit, were either performed by the apostles or by others who had close contact with the apostles. You see in Acts chapter 2, where the, uh, the apostles preach and the people understand the preaching in their own language. We see that in the choosing of the first deacons in Acts chapter 6. We see that in the apostles' work in Samaria, remember Philip, uh, the people are, are leave Jerusalem. The apostles stay in Jerusalem, but people leave Jerusalem and they go uh, out because of persecution under Saul, and they go proclaiming the, the gospel. And the Samaritans get saved. Philip is there; that he doesn't know what to do. And then the apostles come, and then the gifts, the, these special gifts, gifts spirits, come to the apostle. Philip wasn't able to do them. When the apostles come, then no. The, we see the manifestation of the, uh, the Spirit there as well. We see that Paul's ministry in Ephesus in Acts 19. Remember, he comes and talks this the first time for some Ephesians, and he asks, have you heard about the Holy Spirit? Say, ah, nope. And so the only thing we've heard was the baptism of John, and, and Paul proclaims the gospel, and you see that manifestation of the Spirit there too. You see in Acts 10 with Cornelius and Peter. We see that in dealing with Timothy. Paul talks about the gifts of the Spirit that were given to him by the lay, hand, lay on of hands of Paul and of the presbytery, there in 2 Timothy 1.6. Paul calls all these works the signs of the apostles. He does that in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12, where he says, truly, the signs of the apostles, and if you look back in context, you're going to see that these are, these are the signs that he's talking about. Truly, the signs of an apostle were accomplished among you with all perseverance in signs and wonders and mighty deeds. And you, you, you trace, man, those are tiny slides. I didn't notice that. Uh, you trace these three, three words, signs, wonders, and mighty deeds, and you see them all along through the scriptures, even the Old Testament, attached to these miraculous works, speaking in tongues, prophecies, healings, exorcisms, and, and so on. So that's what Paul was talking, talking about. All right, are you with me so far? Okay, let's use our minds for a little bit. 
some, I know, it's late in the day, uh, but we're going to do it. So follow, follow with me. A, a few if-then statements. Remember, whatever the scriptures clearly says, say, and what can be logically deduced from the scriptures, those, this is all truth, right? That's our confession says in chapter 1. So if these signs, wonders, and mighty deeds could only be done by the apostles and by those in direct contact with them, then, for these things to continue to happen, apostles must still be around. Or at the very least, you'd have to have some sort of apostolic succession. What do I mean by that? Peter comes and lays his hands on Bob. Bob lays his hands on Bill. Bill lays his hand on Steve. Steve lays his hand on Tom. Continually all the way to today, at least that would have to take place. But that's not the case. We don't have that, contrary to what the Roman Catholic Church may even um, claim. But if the apostles are not around, then the, the signs associated with the apostles should not be around either. So if there are no apostles today, then these signs also should be gone, because they were from the apostolic age. Are you with me so far? What have I not done yet? I've not proven that there are no apostles today. There are plenty of people that claim to be apostles, right? But what, do the Bible, what does the Bible teach concerning apostles? Are they still around today? Some people are going like this. <laughs> well, I shouldn't do that. Um, if not, why? If there are no apostles today, why are you saying that? Well, because apostles, didn't they have to hear and see Jesus personally? So Jerry's stating that apostles should have been, should have to personally see and hear Jesus, okay? What else? Let me start with a, a different argument. True argument, we're going to see that in a moment. But I want to start with a different argument. I want to start with an argument from Ephesians chapter 2. So if you turn to Ephesians chapter 2, we're not coming to 1 Corinthians back. We're not coming back to 1 Corinthians 12 tonight. But if you turn to Ephesians chapter 2, and verse 19, what we see here is that the very structure of the church implies the cessation of the extraordinary gifts of the Spirit. The very structure of the church teaches us that apostles who are intrinsically connected with prophecy, tongues, and miraculous healings, casting out of demons, and so on, are not part of the church today. They fulfill their office, and they're not around today. Look at verse 19 of Ephesians 2. Paul says, Now therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. So in this passage, Paul uses 
two metaphors to teach that in the New Covenant, the church composed now of Gentiles and of Jews is the great house-building project that God is building in the period between Christ's exaltation and his return. So the, this passage is talking about this period between the elevation of Christ to heaven and his return, how the church now is made of Jews and Gentiles, and that the church is God's building project. He's building up his church. And the foundation in view is there, and the foundation is finished. If you look at verse 20, the foundation is the apostles, it is the prophets, and it is Christ as a chief cornerstone. That work's been done. It's laid. It's settled. The foundation is there. The, 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 the foundation is historically completed. When a, builder, when a builder knows what they're doing, so it's not me. When a builder knows what they are doing, what he's doing, and it's safe to assume that God knows what he's doing, he lays the foundation once in the beginning of the project. Once the foundation is laid, you don't have to lay it again and again and again and again. It's done. It's ready to be built upon. From our vantage point, we are in the building period. Christ has already laid the foundation for his church, and now he's building the church. And verse 21 says that this, this, this building grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In verse 22, you are also being built. That's being built, whereas the foundation, it says, has been built. A foundation of the apostles and the prophets, with Christ being the chief cornerstone. Those things are done. It's being laid there. Are you with me so far? Okay. So foundation materials have been used. Once they're used, you don't need them anymore. It's there. You build upon it. Their value is in building upon it, not continue to use in the rest of the structure. Now, a question that begs an answer is, how are the apostles and the prophets with Christ bringing them together, the church's foundation? Now, it's easy to see how Christ is the chief cornerstone. Do you know what the idea of a cornerstone is? The whole building is anchored there, right? Uh, I don't know if they still use that anymore in modern building. Uh, they, they have ceremonial cornerstones where, where they break ground and they, they lay down the cornerstone and there's a little plaque and people you know, go celebrate it. But in ancient building, that was what kept the building anchored. It wouldn't move anywhere. That was what kept it uh, from falling. So Christ is the chief cornerstone. Is the chief cornerstone because of his saving work and fulfillment of all covenantal requirements imposed by the Father. And Paul addresses that in 1 Corinthians 3 when he says, For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, you are God's building according to the grace of God which was given to me as a wise master builder. I have laid the foundation and another builds on it. But let each one take heed how he builds on it for no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So that's the foundation. That's the cornerstone of the foundation. The apostles also belong to the Foundation, not because the saving work of Christ is somehow incomplete. It's rather because of their witness to the work of Christ that they belong to the foundation. They witness to the work of Christ, therefore they're part of the foundation. This witness is fully authorized by the risen Christ. In, in, in Acts 17, verse 8, 
Christ directly tells Paul, go lay the foundation in the city of Corinth. It says, if it's, it is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father, oh, sorry, is that Acts 1, 7 and 8, where he's speaking to all the disciples, and Jesus says, it's not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority, but you shall receive power from when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. That's the place of the apostles. And have they done that? Yes or no? Have they been a witness to Jesus in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the, the earth? How? Exactly. That's their witness. That's the witness, the Bible. Foundational material there. Paul himself says that he didn't get his message from other people. He got it directly from God. This was a revelatory witness. That is, the Holy Spirit authoritatively spoke through the apostles like he did through nobody else. Paul says that. Paul says that the Thessalonians were honorable because they received the words that he has given them as the word of God as they were. Paul recognized that that very letter was the word of God. So to the foundational, once-for-all, finished work of Christ, God joined the foundational, once-for-all, finished apostolic witness to that work. Christ is foundation. Revelation about Christ is part of the foundation as well. Not stuff that keeps on happening, but stuff that's laid on the foundation. And with the place of the apostles in the history of redemption in mind, we see that Ephesians 2.20 indicates that the apostles had a temporary, non-continuing role in the life of the church. They're not supposed to be there forever. Why? Because they're foundational material. Not wall material, not window material. They're foundation material. Their place was in the, was in the important foundation-laying phase of the history of the New Covenant. So the the apostles' function was fulfilled. It does not belong to the building period of the church. Instead, it provides the completed foundation which Christ continues to build the structure which is the church. So why don't we have apostles today? Because they're part of the foundation period of the church, not the building period of the church. Any questions on that? Okay, and then then uh, Paul says that the prophets are also there. Now, it would be nice if these were Old Testament prophets, right? Because you have the apostles and the prophets and Christ bringing them together. It would be the continuity of the Old and New Testament, the joining together of the Old and New Testament, but it's not. It's New Testament apostles. And we kind of know that because, uh, New Testament prophets, sorry. We kind of know that because the, the order goes apostles and prophets instead of prophets and apostles. Later on in Ephesians, Paul contracts, uh, con- contrasts what God had not revealed in other ages with what he's revealing now to the, his holy apostles and prophets, telling us that, that those are New Testament prophets there. And as the apostles, the Christian prophets were witnesses to the work of Christ, so being foundational to the building of the church. They're witnesses to the word of Christ. They're actually speaking the words that belong to Christ. 
therefore they are part of the foundation of the church. Are you with me still? Is, is that too late on a Wednesday night to be talking about these things? Okay. There are other lines of New Testament teaching that confirm what I'm saying here. That the, the office of the apostle is temporary, only part of the foundation building phase of the church. What Jerry brought up, in order for someone to be an apostle, the Bible says, one had to be an eyewitness and ear witness of Christ before his ascension. Uh, we're told that in 1 Peter, we're also told that in Acts chapter 1, where they're trying to, to, to choose an, an apostle to replace Judah, they, they end up choosing Matthias to be that apostle. The criteria, one of the criteria, one of the criteria was that the, the man had to be a witness of Jesus' ministry on earth and of his resurrection. And then you say, aha, I caught you there, because Paul wasn't. And he recognizes that, Paul does, in 1 Corinthians 15, he says that he was born out of, out of due time, and yet he was a, he, he was a witness to the, to the ascended Christ, wasn't he? Remember how he came to, to know the Lord on his face on the road to, the, to Damascus? And then in 2 Corinthians 12, he tells us he was taken to heaven and seeing Jesus face to face there as well. So he does fit there. And it's interesting, 1 Corinthians 15 says, and last of all, but last in the order of apostles, here is Paul, the last one, which means that he's the last one that, uh, anyway, he's the last one, right? There's no one uh, after after him. So the signs of the apostles, associated with the apostles, as tongues, prophecies, um, healings, and so on, are not with us anymore because the apostles are not with us anymore because they were given to the church for that foundational period. Any questions on that? Another argument is this, that the signs and wonders introduce new periods of revelation. Tongues, prophecy, and miracles are so are uh, united with God's giving the church, his people, new words. That's what I mean by periods of revelation. There are three major periods of revelation in the Bible. Can you think of the word, what they were? Three major periods in which the word of God is being literally written. Can you think what they were? So Moses, right? Uh, are there all kinds of miraculous stuff happening over there? Seas parting, bugs, and everything else, right? What's another major period of the Bible being written? The beginning, at least. The prophets with Elijah and Elisha. Those are there's the beginning of the office of the, the major office of the prophet. Uh, are there miracles and stuff happening over there more than any other time? Uh huh. You know, people being taken up to heaven. Kids being killed because they teased the prophet, uh, you know, uh, raised from the dead, hammers floating, death leaving the pot. Back in the day, Darren and I thought, thought we were going to put that verse on the coffee pot of the church. There's death in the pot. Uh, uh, and then the third one is what? The New Testament, right? When the New Testament is being written. And again, we see all this extraordinary uh, work of the Spirit to confirm what's being said. See, there's three big epochs of 
Revelation, and you see that in all three, this great work of speaking tongues, prophecies, and healings, miracles happening during those times to confirm what is being said. It's true that there are miracles here and there in the Old Testament, Isaiah healed Hezekiah, Daniel in the lion's den, but even those were spokespeople for God. They were speaking the word of God. So they introduced periods of revelation, but the signs and wonders also authenticated the messengers of revelation. We see that throughout the Bible where um, these miracles weren't done by themselves. They were done in order to authenticate the messenger, that that, that this person was from God and what he was saying was from God as well. And we already have all that. And these were signs and wonders were there to call people's attention to the revelation that's been done. Remember what John says at the end of the gospel, why he wrote this gospel? He says, There's, if, if, if we're to write all the signs, all the miracles that Jesus did, there'll be, no, there'll be not be enough books on earth to contain them all. But these were written, why? That you might believe. The, the, these that are there are there to cause people attention to their revelation to the word. Jesus never healed somebody just to heal somebody. It was always to accompany by the proclamation of his word, to verify, to authenticate his word. Questions? Brandon? Both can be either way. I, I do not question the, gen, the genuineness of people necessarily. Uh, I think that teachers might jump into the deceiver category, and people in the pew might be in the deceived category. Because, specifically speaking in tongues, it's not, it wasn't part of my notes, but if you look at Isaiah 28. The prophet there says, when you hear among you, that is among the people of God, people speaking a language you don't understand, you're being judged by God. So the, the idea of hearing a tongue that you can't understand is not a sign of blessing. It's a sign of judgment. Now he was referring to what? We caught people. What? The captivity, right? Where Babylonians will come speaking a different language you don't understand. But then Paul quotes that in 1 Corinthians 14 and applies to people speaking tongues in the church. It says, people come in church and they're speaking a tongue you can't understand. There's no profit them. They're going to think of judgment. So even in the New Testament, Paul's saying tongues are not for the corporate worship of the church. So even the, even what, even the practice of today... Even if, if, even if the gifts are for today, the way that is generally practiced is not even in accordance with how the first century church was doing during those periods of revelation. Okay? Uh, one last thing. How does the church thought about signs and wonders? Have they always decided that there was, or there always people speaking in tongues? Or there, was it always accepted the... the Truth is, it wasn't. For the first 500 years of the, of the Christian church, 
There's no mention, you know, there's no way that speaking in tongues or prophecies or, uh, were accepted. As a matter of fact, there's only one reference to the Montanists who were heretics uh, in all kinds of ways in the church. It wasn't until around 500 AD that, uh, that uh, some group would come up with that. The next, so the first 500 years, nothing. 500, somewhere in there, some groups, they are squashed because it's not accepted. It is not, the, the, the church as a whole doesn't believe in that. And then next time, the significance of tongue speaking is in the 17th century. When again, a bunch of fringe, marginal groups start doing, and it's never been accepted. It wasn't until the late 19th century, early 20th century, that speaking in tongues and prophecies and that kind of stuff became acceptable in mainstream. It wasn't until, if you think about it, the Azusa Street revivals with Sister Amy, not Amy Hunter, Amy um, McPherson, that it kind of came more into mainstream. And today it seems to be accepted by in the history of the church for the first 1800 years of the Christian church was not considered something that should be present in, in the church. Ran out of time. I wanted to just do a brief word about speaking in tongues. Um, we we think oh, people think about speaking in tongues and prophesying. It's okay because different is is um, we're not the prophecies is not the same as the prophecies in the Bible. It's a different kind of prophecy. And the problem is that speaking in tongues, the Bible is always very revelatory. It was always if it was from God, it was a message from God that was binding on everybody around you. A prophecy in the New Testament was something that was binding on everybody around you. So if you're, what you're doing today is not binding around everybody around you, so you're not doing what, the, what it's in the Bible. It's something else. It's not the gift of the Spirit that's mentioned in the Bible. What was the punishment for a prophet in the Old Testament that didn't speak a prophecy that came to pass? Death. Death right? Well, there uh, there was two times that a prophet would die. It was when he spoke something that didn't come to pass, or when he spoke something that drew the people away from God, even if the prophecy came to pass. Right? That's the kind of prophecy the Bible talks about. So, if you're saying something, you're saying as a message from God, and it's not coming to pass, it's not, yeah, duck. Yeah, that's what Jerry said. <laughs> I was going to say, it's, then you're not doing what the New Testament is talking about. You're doing something else. Namely, lying. Right? If you say, the God told me that this is going to happen, it doesn't happen, what do we call that? We call that a lie. Right? Either you or God is lying in that. Right? Um, so we have to be careful with this idea of God telling us stuff that's not in the Bible, right? And uh, prophecy is revelatory, is authoritative. If it's prophesying through you, then we better listen to you because whatever you're saying, we're going to be held accountable for in the day of judgment. That's the kind of prophecy that the Bible talks about. Now, if, not, if, not, if that's not what you're doing, then don't call it prophecy because you're doing something that's not described 
in the Bible. Does it make sense to you? Same with speaking in tongues. It's supposed to be a revelation from God. And it's supposed to be binding on everybody. If it's, that's not what you're doing, then you're not doing what the New Testament was, people were doing either. Any last questions? I know we're going to kind of leave in the air a little bit. Um, yes, quick question, Darius. If I believe that genuinely glorifies God for me to kill you, does, not, does my motive change what God said? No. So sin is not necessarily, sin is not just a motive, right? It's, oh, if we have the right motive, if you're doing something wrong, it makes the thing right. It's still sinful if we're doing something that God says it's not for us to do. Does it make sense? Okay. Anything else before we close? All right, so I, I wanted to, for us to be able to distinguish between gifts that are for us today, we should pursue, and gifts that we're not. And specifically, the gift of prophecy, tongue, and miraculous healings are not for us today. They're given in order to confirm that the Bible is the Bible. That's completed. That's done. We don't need that anymore. There's all kinds of other gifts. They are not as showy. They don't bring the attention to you as those other three gifts do, but there's all kinds of other gifts that we need to be pursuing uh, in order to build up the, the, the church of Jesus Christ. All right? Let's pray. Father, thank you for being good to us. Thank you that you are a God who provides for your church and gives gifts through your spirit. We pray that you equip us to serve one another and dismiss us with your blessings. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.